Well, I hope, you, I hope that you came to church this morning hoping to study the Bible. 33rd Psalm. 33rd Psalm. Now, I want to show you something. You're in the 33rd Psalm. Remember, last week we looked at the 32nd Psalm. And what I invite you to do is join me in following along in reading Psalm 32, verse 11, and then dropping down to Psalm 33 and verse number 1. And what I'd like you to do is notice two things. And we'll read them and see if you can figure it out. Huh? A little cliffhanger for you. See if you're paying attention. Right? Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Isn't that interesting? Psalm 32 and verse 11 ends, and Psalm 33 and verse 1 picks up right where Psalm 32 leads off. Also, notice something that is absent from the preface or the introductory portion of Psalm 33. What don't you have? Well, you don't have an inscription ascribing authorship to anyone. So it's very unusual in the first book of the Psalms, which is Psalms 1 through 41, for us to not have David saying that he authored one of those Psalms. Matter of fact, the last time we encountered uh, a Psalm that did not have a heading to it was Psalm number 10. And remember what I told you back in Psalm number 10 was that Psalms 9 and 10 were to be taken as one Psalm. And the, the, one of the reasons why is because Psalm 10 didn't have any introduction and that the Psalms 9 and 10 were connected with an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, that's not true for this Psalm, Psalms 32 and 33, but you do have a connection being made nonetheless. And uh, when you're in your Bible study, you would do well to take note of connections like that because the Lord likes to connect His Word. There's nobody that knows how to write a book like the Lord. And if the Lord has ordered His Word in a particular manner, we ought to take reference of why God has done that. Now, this is important because Psalm 33 follows Psalm 32. Well, that doesn't seem very profound. 32 comes before 33. But what's important about that is this. Is that where Psalm 32 leaves off, Psalm 33 begins. And what it does is it connects Psalm 32 and Psalm 33. Well, what is Psalm 32? Psalm 32 is a penitential psalm. And Psalm 33 is a psalm of thanksgiving or a psalm of praise. And what that tells us is only those who come to know what it means to have their sins forgiven, covered, and not imputed, or not recorded, or not written in their own ledger as the Psalm 32 begins. It is only those that have had their sin debt wiped away and charged to someone else's account. Those are the kind of people who can sing true and authentic praise to God. 
Maybe, and not maybe, but most certainly, God allowed David to fall into the grievous sin that David fell into so that David could come to know the God who forgives and keeps his covenant. The covenant of the Lord is what is in focus in the 33rd Psalm. Notice this phrase which occurs as Brother Nate read three times over. Psalm 33, or yeah, Psalm 33 and verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And my English Standard Version. Notice also verse 18. Where again, you have this phrase, steadfast love. And the final verse, also verse 22, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Now, this is important because Psalm 32 was the foundation upon which Paul builds his teaching in Romans chapter 4, 5, and 6 on justification by faith. Justification by faith, that doctrine is taken from the 32nd Psalm. And what you have occurring in Psalm 33 now is a very unusual thing. Most of the Psalms are written specifically for the nation of Israel. Because the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was God's framework for his redemptive purposes. The nation of Israel was the channel, the river, as it were, the doorway whereby God works out his saving grace on planet earth. The difference between the Old Testament is in the Old Testament, God used Israel to save the world, quote unquote, and now in the New Testament, God uses the local church to bring salvation to all who will believe. Are you tracking this thus far? But something very unusual happens in the 8th verse. Can you find it? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. This is fascinating. This is not merely a Jewish hymn, although it was written by Jews and sung by Jews. This is a hymn, a praise song of thanksgiving that is written that the entire world, all the earth, this is a reference to non-Jews, people who are outside the boundaries of the nation of Israel. Now this is a quite provocative thing. Do you want to know why? Because the Jewish people weren't real interested in seeing Gentiles come to saving faith in God. And this is one of the great stumbling blocks that Paul talks about in the New Testament. The Jewish people, for lack of a better term, were prejudiced against the Gentiles and they did not want to see the Gentiles come into the presence and into a relationship with God. But here you have something very peculiar and unusual happening in Psalm 33 and it follows Psalm 32 and David says, let all the earth praise God, let every inhabitant of the planet called earth stand in awe of him. 
And what this is doing is this is foreshadowing a day whereby God would confine, would no longer confine his saving work to the people of Israel alone. But this psalm commands and praises God that the doors of heaven, that a relationship would be made open and available to non-Jewish people. This would have been a very unusual and provocative thing for David to say because in David's day, the Jewish people by and large were at war with the nations that surrounded them. They were not on good terms. Now can you see why Paul chooses Psalm 32 to build his teaching that God justifies sinners by faith alone in Christ alone by the grace of God alone? And that that salvation would no longer be confined to the nation of Israel, but ultimately that salvation has now become available to the entire world. And that is one of Paul's key arguments in the book of Romans. Read Romans chapter number 11. Paul is very clear that the Jewish people no longer honored the Lord. And they are like a natural olive branch which has been cut off and God has now grafted a wild olive branch into the root who is Christ. And God has now refocused his redemptive purposes no longer to the nation of Israel but now to the local church. And this morning as you and I sit here underneath the sound and the teaching of God's word, there are local churches almost in every country in the world, in every hemisphere, and it be, you would be well to say that the sun never sets upon the kingdom of God right now as we speak. Oh, sure, there are countries that are closed to the gospel. There are countries that are not interested in hearing of Christ. But here we are this morning, and God is fulfilling Psalm 33 and verse number 8. And isn't that wonderful to know that God saw you through the telescope of time. He told David that one day you would be coming to know the God of Israel. And that God would save and redeem and call for himself out of the Gentile nations, a peculiar people set apart, chosen for God's purposes. The local church, the visible body of believers. And David foresaw this event. And St. Paul, in his writing in the book of Romans, also knew what David said. And it's amazing what's written in the Bible when you actually sit down to study it. You know, one of the leading elements of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, when he comes here to the earth and he's dealing with his people, and he says that they're a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people and they won't listen to God, and over and over again Jesus says to them, Have you not read? Have you not read? And all that we need to know has already been written for us in sacred scripture. Holy Scripture, the Holy Bible, contains our highest rule of authority of faith and practice. Isn't that good to know this morning? And Jesus, just like he was asking his ancient people 2,000 some odd years ago, have you not read this morning? I'm asking you, have you not read? Have you not read? I want to begin this morning with a question. What is God's steadfast love in Psalm 33, verse 5, 18, and 22? This is 
the Hebrew word hesed. Say it with me. Hesed Adonai. Again, hesed Adonai. The steadfast love of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't Hebrew a beautiful language? Hesed Adonai. The loving kindness of God, of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord. And this is the phrase that follows three times over in this great and 33rd Psalm. Matter of fact, listen to these statistics. The word hesed in Hebrew occurs 255 times in the Old Testament. And 130 of those 255 occurrences are found in the book of Psalms. Over half of the mentions of God's hesed, God's covenant love, God's steadfast love, over half of the mentions of that word are found in the one book of the Psalms. Isn't that fascinating? So if I want to know something about God's hesed, what book should I probably study? Well, the book of Psalms would be a good place to start. And so that's where we are, and that's where our study begins with the question, what is God's hesed? You may not be aware of it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. There's bickering and there's sort of a lot of discussion that goes on with the scholars and commentators, boy, isn't there? And uh, you may not know that in the Hebrew uh, commentaries of the great scholars of the world who have spent years of time in study and preparation to learn the Hebrew language. They sort of go back and forth at each other like this about what does hesed mean? And it is such a complex word, it's such a deep word, it's such a rich word, that in English we use two words to try to describe it. When it's only one little word in Hebrew, hesed, it doesn't sound very complex at all, does it? But notice, I'm going to give you three popular translations of the word hesed in our modern English version. Steadfast love in the English Standard Version. Loving kindness, covenant loyalty, and English translators of the uh, modern versions of the Bible try to use two words to describe this one little Hebrew word. And the problem is, is no matter how many words you use, it doesn't even begin to plumb the great depths of God's said. God's steadfast love. Why was God able to forgive David of any and all sins immediately and completely when David came to God in repentance and confession in Psalm 32? It was because of God's hased, God's loving kindness, God's steadfast love, His covenant loyalty. I want to give you this definition of the word has said, and I don't mean to sound like I've got it all figured out, but I'm standing up here this morning, at least speaking, and I have to tell you something. But I do think that this is the truth based upon several things that I've researched. Steadfast love is most certainly a relational term which describes the benefits and duties that one party bears to another party because of their relationship with one another. Hesed is best illustrated in the marriage vows. 
the marriage vows. Till death do us part to have and to hold in poverty, in poverty, in poverty and wealth. <laughs> More poverty than wealth, probably, right? But the idea in the marriage vows is that two parties are keeping a commitment that they have made to one another. The issue and the issue with God's has said is that God's has said while we have responsibilities, God is really the one who bears the weight of the covenant. God himself is the one who keeps the covenant and that's what Psalm 33 is all about. God himself exercises steadfast love to his chosen people because of his relationship to them. It's the relationship that he had with Israel, and it's the relationship that God now has with people that make up his local church. He, God, if you genuinely belong to the Lord, God relates to you in his said that is his steadfast love. In other words, to know the Lord means to know the benefits of being in a relationship with the Lord. This is a theme that has come up several times in these last weeks. If I've had an opportunity to speak on various occasions, the benefits of knowing the Lord. And that's exactly what Psalm 33 is about. See, I really can't come to know the nature of the Lord until I have experienced the benefits of the Lord. I can't know really what the Lord is like until I've experienced what God has done for me. And it's in what God has done for me that I begin to understand who God is. The same way it works with my lovely wife. She does the things that she does for me because she loves me. And the expression of her love for me is what she does for me. She puts up with a whole lot of mess. But isn't that the way the Lord is with us, too? The Lord is very long-suffering, and He relates to us in His loving kindness. In Psalm 32, we meet the Lord whose nature is to forgive. But in Psalm 33, we find the benefits of knowing the Lord who forgives, and we are called upon to worship and praise God for His steadfast love, for His said. Psalm 33 teaches us that everyone who experiences the undeserved forgiveness of God enters into a life of incredible praise. It's the forgiveness of God that's the foundation for David's praise psalm in Psalm 32. In other words, if you've never been truly forgiven, you've never truly and authentically had your sins expiated, washed away, washed in the blood, forgiven, pardoned, you know, all those wonderful Bible words, if you've never experienced that, then you may not be able to offer up authentic praise. Only those who have been authentically forgiven, completely and fully, can know what it means to authentically praise God. This ancient hymn reveals at least four great benefits of God's steadfast love for us. Number one, the benefit of knowing a new song of praise, verses 1 through 3. Benefit number two, the benefit of knowing God's word and works. The benefit of knowing God's word and works. Benefit number three, the benefit of knowing a trustworthy God. The benefit of knowing a trustworthy God. 
And the fourth and final benefit is the benefit of knowing the God who saves. The benefit of knowing the God who saves. So you have four benefits. The first one, the benefit of knowing a new song of praise. The second one, the benefit of knowing God's word and works. Thirdly, the benefit of knowing a trustworthy God. And fourthly, the benefit of knowing the God who saves. And that encompasses verses 1 through 19. You say, what happened to verses uh, 20 through 22? Well, I just didn't have time to mess with them. <laughs> Maybe next week I can mention something about them, all right? Yeah, we'll be, just be honest with you, you know, I'll keep you here till sometime in 4 o'clock. <laughs> oh, maybe not. I know that y'all are having a good time. The benefit of knowing a new song. Notice two things. I want to ask two questions. Question number one in verse one of Psalm 32 is who, are, who is the righteous? Look at what it said. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. And the second question I have comes from verse number three when David said, sing to him a new song. Who is the righteous and what is this new song that they sing? Oh, I'm having a good time this morning. When we think of the word righteous, who are the righteous? We think of those that kind of have this holier-than-thou attitude. When we think of someone who's righteous, perhaps it's a fellow who has his collar on backwards, and he wears long black flowing robes, and they do chants, and they're morally pure. And uh, usually, especially in rural center, if I was to ask y'all, who do you think is righteous, or what is a righteous person like, you would probably say someone that doesn't smoke and chew and run at girls that do. But I don't know that that is what righteous means at all. Righteous does not mean those who do good and don't do bad. That's sort of included. I want to give you several characteristics of those whom the Lord calls righteous. Several characteristics of those whom the Lord deems righteous. The Lord deems righteous those who are in a relationship with him. And who are the ones in Psalm 32 that can be in a relationship with God? Well, they're sinners. <laughs> See, we kind of have this high and holy sort of idea of what the word righteous means when actually it's the complete opposite. See, righteousness comes through a relationship with God. God doesn't say, clean yourself up so you can know me. God says, come to me and know me and I'll clean you up. There's a big difference. And we kind of have this idea floating around in our brains somewhere. I think preachers sometimes, unfortunately, have give us these ideas. There's only one kind of person who can experience the hesed of God, the covenant love, the steadfast love, the loving kindness of God, the mercy of God, and that is they are sinners. One requirement to be righteous, you have to be a sinner. Well, that kind of stands us on our head, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, it gets better, don't worry. You have to be in a relationship with God. In order to be in a relationship with God, you have to see yourself as God sees you, as a sinner, broken, undone. Those who are righteous have a reliance upon God alone. 
Boy, I tell you, American culture is filled with people trusting in all these other things except for the Lord. We trust in our handguns, we trust in our Bill of Rights, we trust in our Constitution, we trust in all these things, we trust in our military, we trust in our jobs, on our 401ks. One of the requirements to be righteous is that you rely and your reliance is squared solely on God. And David is clear about that as we move through this great psalm. Nextly, the righteous are intimately aware of their own human frailty, finitude, and fallibleness, and they are thus driven into the open arms of God's mercy. You have to see yourself, know yourself. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner, Augustine said. And then one later, many centuries later, one of his greatest students come along and he said, you cannot know God until you know yourself. And you cannot truly know yourself until you know yourself to be a sinner. This is a great requirement to be righteous. Boy, looks like all of us, if we come to the Lord in faith, can be righteous. Righteous is not someone who has been set upon a pedestal. Someone who says all the right stuff and does all the right stuff and doesn't do the wrong things. Someone who is righteous is someone who sees themselves as flawed, fallible, feeble, frail. And they run into God's open arms. And God makes them righteous. No one ever makes their self righteous. God makes sinners righteous. Jesus said, I am come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And then he said, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, because it's sinners whom God imparts righteousness unto. The great commentator, Mr. Crete, says, quote, The righteous are distinguished from the wicked mainly by their confession of helplessness. And therefore, they seek refuge in the Lord. The righteous are those who see themselves as helplessly dependent on God. One of the great principles of Bible study, whenever I get to teach any book of the Bible, principle number one, it's not about how much knowledge you have. It's not about how much seminary you've had. It's not about if you've been to Bible college or not, who your mom or daddy is. It's about helpless dependence on God. It's an indispensable principle. Helpless dependence. And the result of because the righteous are living in a relationship with the Lord, they are challenged to live out righteous and good relationships with each other. In the covenant community of the Old Testament, righteousness would have been manifested in the relationships that people have with each other. Not that someone thinks that they're more righteous than someone else. That's actually the opposite. That's self-righteousness. That's fake righteousness. But that there is a definite camaraderie in the Lord. A fellowship that occurs. What is this new song? Well, before we can discuss what the new song is, we must discuss what the new song is not. The new song is not primarily a new composition. A new song is not the newest album by the newsboys. A new song is not a new and fanciful hymn that has been written by Hillsong. 
A new song is not new in its kind. A new song is new in its quality. Perhaps we would better translate the new song in Psalm 33 and verse 3. Sing to him a renewed song. A renewed song. Before I can sing a new song, I must first have been renewed. What does it mean when God renews you? A new song is a song that is sung from a renewed heart and a brand new life in Jesus Christ. You can't sing a new song if you're still in old Adam. Old Adam has to be put to death. So that you can be resurrected brand new. And that's where your new song comes from. The new song is a song that is sung only by the redeemed. One of the great occurrences of this phrase new song is the hymn which the Israelites sang in Exodus chapter number 15. It's a redemptive song. It's a song that arises out of a heart that has had its sins washed away and it has been bought again from the slave market of sin and placed under a new master. The old master was death and hell and the prince of the power of the air and the new master is the spirit, the word, and Christ Jesus the Lord. That's where a new song comes from. A new song comes from a new life. The new song is a song which God puts in us after redemption. You don't work up a new song. A new song is given to you. It's a gift of God. Secondly, the new song is a fresh praise which we sing to God for His new works day by day. You ought to have a new song for God today. The old song you were singing yesterday, that ain't good enough. What you need is a fresh song a song that is being given to God, you're praising God anew, afresh, daily. Now here's one of the great themes of this song. We think that creation was a one and done that God did way back yonder at some point in eternity. You know, some, you know, some time immemorial. I don't know, the creation scientists think it was seven and a half thousand years ago. I'm not, I don't know. How do you know? There's no timeline. God doesn't tell us exactly when it was. But here you have in Psalm number 33 a very curious thing. And it is that God's creative power is not a one and done, but it's ongoing. God is continually renewing the world. And how is he doing that? Well, he is God. He is the sustainer of all things. We've seen this great theme before. This new song is a song that is sung when we experience God afresh. Roman numeral number two, the benefit of knowing God's word and God's works. I want you to see verses four and five. Verses four and five. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his works is done in faithfulness. It's actually singular. Work is done in faithfulness. So here you have two things, God's word and God's work that occur in the singular verse. Notice, there are five great qualities of God in these verses, in this verse 5 as well. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. In these two verses, you have David saying that God is upright, 
God is faithful, God is righteous, God has justice, and God is a God of steadfast love. What does this mean? All this suggests that God's word and God's work always mesh together perfectly. Let's bring it down on the bottom shelf where the cookies can get gotten by the kitties. What does this mean? God's word and God's works always do this. Well, sometimes we say words and our works don't match up, do they? I don't know about you, but even when we have good intentions, even when we have a pure heart, we sometimes say things and do another. We say one thing and we do another. You know why we do that? Because we're flawed, because we're fallible, because we're feeble, because we're frail. But see, the Lord is not like that. And the Lord's work and the Lord's word always coalesce. They always coincide. God doesn't say one thing and do another. God always does what he says he's going to do. Every time. And this is the foundation upon which David builds his argument that our God is a trustworthy God. Why, David? Because God's word and God's work always do this right here. They're one. God never reneges on his promises. He never backs out of a contract. Human beings, you and I, we do that kind of stuff all the time. Even when we think we're not, we are. Even when we don't want to admit it, we are and we do. Even when we have good intentions, we do that. We renege on our word, don't we? But God never does that. And this is the foundation of this great psalm, verses 4 and 5. God should be praised and worshipped for everything he says and does. Now we're touching on something called the fidelity of God. The fidelity of God. God is always faithful. David, how is God faithful? Well... Let's look at verses 4 through 12. I'm going to give you just a couple of them and we're going to be dismissed. God deserves to be trusted. Why? Because he has proven himself trustworthy. See, this psalm is designed to build the faith of those who have had their sins wiped away. And David's going to give you several strong reasons why you should trust the Lord. And why you should not renege on your trust with God. What, David will tell us in very clear language why we should trust a trustworthy God. We trust God because He's proven Himself. You say, Lord, prove yourself. He says, okay, I will. The first way that God proves Himself trustworthy is through His wise ordering of creation. Think about this. Look at these verses. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Folks, did it ever occur to you that if God was to take his hand off of his creation for one millisecond, all the protons, neutrons, atoms, this whole planet would be bombarded by Armageddon asteroids and we would be wiped out, snuffed out in just a split second. A millisecond. See, God is trustworthy because he himself has been sustaining creation by his mighty creative power. The creative power of God is ongoing. It hasn't stopped. 
God didn't just speak the physical universe into existence. God spoke and God created all the laws of gravity, physics, time and space, protons, neutrons, atoms, everything is being ordered by God and he's holding it together himself. And you can trust a God who's doing that. A God who has enough power to hold the universe together by himself. He doesn't need anybody's help. He doesn't need to create machines. It's God himself that is sustaining the universe. In Isaiah, the Bible says that the universe, the physical universe as we know it, is in the span of God's hand. That's the tip of his thumb to the end of his pinky. That's how God views our physical universe that's infinite. Billions of light years. Planets innumerable. Galaxies unknown are in the span of God's hand. It's a staggering. God is keeping the chaotic forces of the atmosphere and of the cosmos at bay. That's what this, what is this? Look at verse uh, number 6. He gathers the waters and the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. He's like a mighty dam that keeps the rushing waters from destroying everything on the other side. He's like a levee. And if God wants the levee to break, everything on the other side is washed away. It's done. But he's not doing that. He's sustaining it. Secondly, God proves himself trustworthy by choosing a peculiar people for himself. Look at verse number 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Think about this. Since the time of Adam and Abraham and Noah, God has always had a believing remnant that has followed him. Isn't that weird? I mean, all the ancient gods of the ancient Near East, Ashtoreth, Baal, Zeus, Moloch, Chemosh, all the gods of the ancient Near East are long gone. Nobody has temples for them, but here we are right now worshiping the God of Israel. Isn't that kind of weird? It's not weird at all. What that tells me is that God is sovereign and that God has been choosing people out of the human race for himself to be a people of order, to be a people of discipline, to be a people who follow him through thick and thin, to be a people who love him. One of the greatest proofs and one of the greatest evidences that God is trustworthy is that God has a people called Israel and that that people, God has a plan for them. They've never been wiped out completely, although it may seem they have. Our God is a God who is trustworthy, and he's proven himself to be trustworthy. He's holding the world together. People talk about all this chaos. There's an asteroid. There's global warming. There's Y2K whenever I was a kid. There's all this stuff. Now, you know, it's something new, something this and that. God is sustaining the world. And he has been since the beginning of time. It's his creation. He's ordered it. You can trust him. A God who is able to sustain creation for time immemorial is a God who is worthy of our trust. A God who calls people from nothing to himself, who raises up nations from nothing, who calls forth churches out of nothing. A God who has had followers for eons is a God who is worthy of our trust. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, surround us with your steadfast love, your covenant-keeping love, your loving kindness, your mercy. Hesed Adonai, the goodness of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.